Father in heaven, who at the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan proclaimed him your beloved Son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit, grant that all who are baptized into his name may keep the covenant they have made and boldly confess him as Lord and Savior, who with you in the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and that is the collect appointed for today, January the 8th, 2023. I'm your host, John Green. I have the hiccups today, so know that as we get ready to get started on this. There's nothing I can do about that. I've tried every home remedy known to mankind and it's, I still have them, so it is what it is. We'll get through it, I promise. Anyway, kind of a good week this week. We got back to normal in some ways. Um, we, we, didn't, we were able to come home from our exile in uh, Knoxville due to the lack of water here in Asheville. The incompetence of the city of Asheville in, in this is, is unbelievable. Um, but it is what it is, and we're home now, and so we had a good week, um, able to get to the gym normally, um, enjoyed the week, uh, had lunch with a fr- friend on Friday, and really enjoyed that time together, so been kind of a blessed time. We're headed out of town next week for a few days. Hello. Going to Chattanooga for a few days, looking forward to it, going to see some friends while we're there, uh, some family as well, so looking forward to being there and seeing my mom as well as uh, a lot of my buddies from uh, high, sc- high school, which was obviously a long time ago now. But anyway, looking forward to that. So I hope you've had a good week, and uh, I hope that um, you have a wonderful day of worship today on this Sabbath. So we're talking about the baptism of the Lord today. The, the Old Testament passage, however, is the one that I really, in some ways, want to focus on more than the others. It's going to inform the re- rest of what I talk about. We're going to look first at Isaiah 42, 1-9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And clearly here he's speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the one who is to come, um, the chosen one, in whom God's soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. It's a cause and effect, right? So I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We're going to spend some time talking about justice today because that seems to be one of the very first and most important things Messiah will do. In fact, in other places in Isaiah, he speaks of the nations coming to Israel, coming to Jerusalem, where the Messiah, the king of of, uh, Israel, the Davidic king will be, and and they will come, and they will seek justice from him, and they will then cease their wars, and they'll beat their swords into plowshares. So it's that's the big point. Up, Messiah is to bring justice, which is to say it brings peace. Those two things should happen, but but there's a sort of a precondition for how justice can bring peace, right? That precondition is truth. And Jesus is full of grace, yes, and truth. And too often today, church churches take one of those far more seriously than the other. They only preach grace or they only preach truth. 
Those two things necessarily must coexist in order for there to be justice. So, so he will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a fainting, faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, he's not going to come make a big deal out of himself. He's not going to come and seek attention. He's, he's not going to have to. But the other side of it is, is that the way that he deals with people is with compassion and love. Those who are hurting, those who are suffering, he deals with in love. And I've said this before um, about the way that Jesus deals with people, with the grace and truth, not paradox, but the, the, the principle of grace and truth. What you'll see throughout the Gospels is when Jesus is, is faced with a group of people who consider themselves to be righteous at any level, he hits them with truth. If you see him dealing with people who are suffering, he deals with them with grace. Um, the, but, but those are never mutually exclusive. The woman at the well is offered grace, but not at the expense of truth. He's, she, he offers her rivers of living water, but she can't escape two truths particularly. One is her sin. You've been married a bunch of times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. you got to deal with who you are and what your sin is. And then second, what you have to deal with is true theology. She says, um, one like Moses is going to come, and he'll explain to us everything then. And Jesus said, says, I'm that guy. And, and the reality you need to deal with is salvation comes from the Jews. That would be a hard pill to swallow for a Samaritan because they think the Jews were lost, and they were right. So he took away from her her own self-righteousness, any pretense she might have had to that in the face of this stranger. She couldn't pretend to be that righteous in, in light of her own people. But he also took away from her her pride in being right. And those are the two things that, that, that ultimately have to go, and they're both tied to one another. They're both pride. Pride in, in me being a victim, me being right, me being whatever. And pride in in believing that I am right. But Jesus takes that away from her. Doesn't use it as a cudgel, the truth. But he won't let her have grace without truth. She's got to recognize who she is and the things that she holds very dear, she's quite mistaken about. And so it's important to see those two things have to go together, grace and truth. So Jesus is is patient and he is kind. And he has all those things with um, bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. Those who's, who are holding on to faith in it for dear life sometimes. And, and who feel like I can't take one more thing or I'm going to collapse. <clears throat> Jesus deals gently with those. But that doesn't mean that he does so at the expense of truth. He tells the man that he healed at the pool at Bethesda, um, go and sin no more. That something worse not happen to you. So he confronts that sin. I believe with the healing of the paralytic, when he first says his sins are forgiven, I believe that, that he is he's doing an, an act of healing there that, that precipitates uh, and makes possible the healing, the physical healing. But truth had to come first. He had to hear that he was forgiven. 
So that's the way Jesus does that and says he will faithfully bring forth justice. Justice is, is this important concept here. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So he's going to establish justice not only in Israel but in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. In other words, they see true justice and they want that rather than the thing that we have. It's the reason Jeremiah has to say, don't heal the wound of my people lightly because the the quote light healing of the wound is just going to mean that it's going to prolong the real healing thus says god the lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it the lord of creation i'm the lord i've called you in righteousness i'll take you by the hand and keep you This is to his chosen. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I'm the Lord. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In other words, I'm speaking to you as a prophet, and I'm speaking prophetically to you. And you can mark it down, write it in the book, because it is my will, therefore it will be done. And that's what how he began the thing, right? That little piece. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it. In spirit, to those who walk on it, at the end, he says, new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In other words, I'm the one who created everything from nothing. You can take my word for it when I tell you these new things are coming. And so we have the word of the creator and the promise of the creator that that's exactly what he's doing. And so he did in the face of his son Jesus. And so then we move from that Isaiah passage and thinking about justice, and we're going to think about justice and reconciliation a good bit. Um, Matthew three thirteen to 17 is our gospel passage. Jesus came from Galilee to, to the Jordan to John, John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. Now, why were you baptized? Well, you would baptize yourself, which is a ceremony and ceremonial and ritual washing, you would do it in a multitude of instances. Part of it had to do with physical afflictions. Part of it had to do with things like childbirth. Part of it had to do with things like normal monthly menstruation for women. And the reason for that, the cleansing after after that, was there was a death that occurred. An egg went unfertilized. And so there was a mourning. There was death that occurred in the woman's body. And so that had to be cleansed. It didn't. It wasn't some you know squeamishness about blood. No, it it signified that a death had occurred. So it's not anti anti woman. So you, you did that, and then when you repented of sin, you could go into the mikvah, the ritual bath, and then you would come out and you would be clean, and there would be this physical thing that happened. It's it's what happened with Naaman. When Elisha tells him to go wash himself. Uh, in the Jordan, and, and he comes out, and he's clean of his leprosy because he was obedient. He was obedient to the command of the man of God. 
about what to do. He didn't want to be obedient, but his servants convinced him to be obedient. He was a humble man. Initially, he was a very proud man. Why did I come here? I thought he would come out personally and make a big deal out of this thing, wave his hands around, say some stuff, and then I'd be cleansed. He didn't get a personal audience with Elisha. He felt like he'd been disrespected. His pride was offended by Elisha sending a servant to him rather than coming himself. And then he was offended that he had to go and wash in the Jordan. And he said, aren't the Abana and the Farfar, which are rivers in Syria, aren't they superior to this river here in Israel? And so he had had that pride. And then finally his servants convinced him, this is what you need to do. You just need to do what he said. And so he did. And because he did, because he humbled himself, he let his pride go because he wanted, well, healing worse (laughs) he did um it's it's a thing that that's so hard for so many people but but the incredible thing is is that here we have one who is without sin coming to be baptized john would have prevented him (laughs) saying i need to be baptized by you and do you come to me I, i don't get this i mean john's john's confused in the same way peter is confused in our epistle we're going to get to in a minute. Look, I know who you are. I recognize you. I need to be baptized by you in comparison. I'm the most sinful man on earth. I see this. I see you're greater and I'm lesser, even though I'm older than you. But Jesus answered, let it be so now. For the time being, let this done. But for thus it's fitting for us, the two of us, to fulfill all righteousness, so John consented. So John knew that he wasn't worthy to baptize Jesus. He had already said, I'm not even worthy to untie the laces of his sandals. And now he's being asked to baptize him. So John consented, though, because he, he trusted Jesus' knowledge of what was truly righteous. So he he consented to baptize him, and when, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's a remarkable moment in time. The Son of God, the sinless one, comes and, and is baptized. He begins, begins his identification with us, with those who bear his name, in the incarnation. He then continues his self-identification with his people in circumcision, which was, all this was done to fulfill all righteousness by his parents, but, but nonetheless... He is identified with his people in his circumcision, and now he identifies with sinful humanity in his baptism. Even though he is without sin, he comes and is cleansed. And the result of that, fulfilling all righteousness, is that this is an obedience to what the Father has done, and the Father shows his pleasure in the obedience of his son even in a matter that doesn't that seems in, inconsequential in so many ways and and certainly unnecessary 
from a ritualistic perspective. Because he had no sin, there was nothing to be cleansed of. However, this is all about identification. And so he is identifying with humanity in this moment in a way that he now has chosen, obviously. And so approval comes in two different forms, three really. The heavens are open. The spirit descends like a dove. And then the proclamation from heaven that this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Sometimes God asks us to do things that, that don't make any difference. Sometimes he asks us to lay down our pride, our sense of righteousness, our whatever we have against other people in order that his greater purposes and his greater good can be accomplished. Jesus could have refused to be baptized. He could have pleaded that I have no sin, but he didn't. Instead, what did he do? He identified with sin, with the risk of being taken for a sinner. He didn't worry about his reputation. He didn't worry what people thought. He cared what the Father thought. And when he did this, even though there was no need in an earthly and ritualistic way, then we hear the proclamation and everything begins right here at the baptism. It's the first choice that the incarnate Christ had to make to please the Father. And then it's not a surprise then that what we'll see next week has to do with the temptations and the Spirit drives him out out from this place into the wilderness by himself at a moment when everything could have begun in a very public way. But it doesn't. Because Jesus is trying to please an, an audience of one. And he loves us enough to do that. It's what Paul says in Philippians 2 <clears throat> When he says, to us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's possible if you have Christ, if you have the Spirit of God, it's possible actually for you to have this mind among yourselves, just like Jesus did. Who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He laid that aside, and when he was asked, he would defer because he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, the, the proof was there on its own in the works that he did and the teaching. Paul says, no, he had all that. He had the right to that, but he emptied himself. He gave all that away. All that away and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the divine condescension was, we are created in the image and the likeness of God, and Jesus, God, chose to take on the likeness of men. Well, one of those is holy and one's not. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. It wasn't enough, Paul says, that he became a man. No, he humbled himself then by becoming obedient to the point of death. 
But that obedience begins right here at baptism. Risking his reputation, risking the, the fact that people are going to think he's a sinner because he's being baptized. And then, ultimately, he becomes the personification and the embodiment of sin on the cross. He willingly does that. But that willingness to please the Father, rather than to uphold his own righteousness and his own rightful claim, that begins right here at baptism. Little steps along the way make possible the big ones. And that's one of the things that as Christians we need to learn and we need to be better at. We need to be able to, if, we're gonna, if we'd like to be really useful for the kingdom, if we'd like to do something great for the kingdom, then we first have to begin by doing small things for the kingdom. And that begins with, with a recognition that, that, well, we're not all that important to start with. Not to the kingdom. Jesus is. But it's the willingness to do whatever he calls us to do and whatever he asks us to do, no matter what other people might think of that. So, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, the worst and most ignominious thing you could possibly do, if you want to ruin your reputation, die on a cross. Because cursed is the one who dies on a cross according to the law. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So there's the path to exaltation is is humility, more and more and more humility, beginning with baptism and and allowing people to believe that you must have some sin in your life or you wouldn't be being taken this ritual bath with John the Baptist, who is preaching a baptism for the repentance of sins. It begins there. The condescension begins with the incarnation, but the, the humility begins with obedience to God's call to allow yourself to be counted among sinners and for people to believe that, that you were there to be baptized for sin and then ultimately it, it, it ends up at the cross. It's not the world's path. Jesus chose the Father's path. Paul chose the Father's path once he got his head right. And so because of that, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So ultimately, it's for the glory of God the Father in this. So then what we get in the the epistle today is Peter has been given a word that he is to follow and go with these men to the home of Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, who has likewise had a dream that brings Peter to this place. And Peter is, I believe, really confused. I believe in many ways what Peter's speech here is a man trying to buy some time, trying to figure out what in the world is going on, why he's here, what the point of all this is. So he opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what's right is acceptable to him. It's a big step for Peter. It's a big step from his pride in Judaism to now seeing God obviously cares about this guy Cornelius. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> that's that's the height of it, right? I, I'm here. I've condescended to come to this place because, well, God apparently loves y'all. As for the word that he sent to Israel, God, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, <clears throat> how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, 
for God was with him. And we're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. In other words, I feel sure you've heard about this. I, I'm here as an eyewitness. God sent you. He, he, he went you one better than that. You don't have to rely on second-hand or third-hand information. Nope, I'm an eyewitness, and God loved you enough to send me. They, the Jews, put him to death by hanging him on a tree. He's not talking bad about him in, in their absence. This is exactly the same sermon he preached on Pentecost. He knows exactly who did this work. He knows who's to blame. They put him to death, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So I'm not just here as an eyewitness to what he did and what he taught. I'm also an eyewitness to his resurrection and to the post-resurrection appearances. And I, and I was favored in that. He, he didn't show himself to everybody, but he did to those who were witnesses and chosen by God. And then he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, did Peter understand there that he was speaking with Gentiles and that, that when he said everyone, it was true? <laughs> did he know that? I mean, we've seen along the way so far in Acts what we've seen is a conversion of Saul in chapter 9. But until then, it's Jews or those who are attached to Jews. So you see the Samaritans, for instance, after the persecution breaks out, after the stoning of Stephen, well, they're sort of cousins. They're the cousins we don't like. It's like Cousin Eddie from um, National Lampoon's Vacation. We don't like them. But they are our cousins. We recognize that we're related to them. And then who you get? You get the, the Ethiopian eunuch who is there as a seeker. And then he goes home. And it's amazing. If you look at the church and the perseverance of the church over time, the church in Ethiopia stands out throughout the generations in, in so many, many ways. It's unbelievable because it had a good beginning. So here now, finally, God begins to do something among true Gentiles, those who are outside the family. And Peter comes, and I, and I believe Peter's pretty proud that he's come. He, he sees in, him, in this uh, sort of a condescension like Jesus is. I didn't count equality with God something to be grasped either, even though I've been an eyewitness and I was chosen by God. I was a disciple of Jesus. I was there for everything that he did. And then after the resurrection, I was there too, um, and so you, you should feel privileged that I've come to you. Well, and then God does this crazy thing and gives them the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, well, just, well I guess we have to baptism, baptize them now. But, but there's, a, there's some pride, I believe, in Peter here that, that continues. <laughs> but it, but it's, it's, it's modified some by the knowledge of his own sin. Yeah, he was an eyewitness to all these things, but he also was the one who betrayed Jesus and had to be restored. And so this, this concept of justice 
takes on something important and why it has to be both grace and truth together. Because strict justice, Paul says in Romans, means that, that the acknowledgement that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then also further, because we've sinned, we deserve death. Because that's the punishment for sin. And so he brings us all to a place where we're guilty. And then he tells us what the solution for that guilt is, and that is Jesus, the cross of Christ, his blood shed in that place as he made atonement for our sins. But do you know what? The the sins that are atoned for are the sins that we confess. But that's the ground of confession. We, We see Jesus identifying with sinners here in his baptism, and and. The reality is is that too many of us don't want to identify with sinners. We want to see ourselves as righteous. Just If you doubt it, then, then have a dispute with somebody. Because in about two minutes, you're going to be the victim. And they're the victimizer. They're the ba- bad person, the evil person. You, however, are an innocent victim. And suddenly, you're no longer a sinner. You have no culpability in this. It's just that other person. And then you make absolutely certain that everybody else knows that. No matter how many times you have to, well, massage the facts in order to make it so. So justice is a slippery thing in a lot of cases. And it's largely because of there's a lack of truth. There's a lack of a willingness to see our own culpability. Justice requires truth. Rarely is one person completely to blame for an interpersonal problem. Rare, though, that people are willing to admit that. (laughs) The biggest barrier to reconciliation is actually truth. And if we don't have truth, we can't have justice. But you can't just have truth. There has to be grace. With the uh, prodigal son, he comes and he brings truth, right? He he admits his, his sin, And he proposes a solution that makes him a servant, but his father hears it. He doesn't stop him when he's making his confession. He stops him after that, before he can propose the way forward. And he proclaims him to be a son. He gives him more than justice. He gives him grace because he restores him. It's a whole lot easier to give grace, frankly, when we can deal truthfully with ourselves. We can we can see our own sins because C.S. Lewis used to say or said that um, he hated the idea that love the sinner and hate the sin. Didn't think, didn't think it was possible until he realized he 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 lived it all day every day. <laughs> that even though he hated what he did in his own life, he never went to the point of hating himself. And and I think that's the thing is that we have to rehumanize ourselves, and the best way to rehumanize ourselves is to see ourselves rightly. And in truth, and that's to see that we are sinners. I have, but but it's highly unlikely that, that that's our beginning point. We um, separate ourselves from other people. We've entrenched ourselves in our position that we're good and just and right. And then we begin the process of demonization of others. I have a guy that I've known for a long time, apparently is going through some stuff in his life, and it must be an interpersonal issue. Because he's been posting stuff on Facebook, Facebook and Instagram pretty much every day, um, and, and these are memes, 
and, and it's clearly pointing fingers at the other person and casting himself as the victim. I know this person well enough to know he ain't a victim. I doubt that that story is true, that he's just the victim. But the problem is, is that it's what we do. And then it becomes impossible to see the other person in such, such a way that we can we can imagine that there's going to be reconciliation there because I'm the victim and they're the victimizer. And we've demonized that person. We've taken away their personhood and we've exalted ourselves into the place of God where we're innocent and righteous. But there's only ever been one innocent victim, and that's Jesus. And he did so willingly. He laid that aside. He chose to be the innocent victim for our sake, for the sake of reconciling us to God and reconciling us to one another. And we're called to make that same sacrifice, lay down our own righteousness in such a way that that sets reconciliation and peacemaking as a higher value. He came because God wanted justice, but what he wanted more than anything else was to be reconciled with his image bearers. Justice demands death for sin. He took the important step of dying for sin in order that we might be reconciled to him. Our response to that loving action should be to confess our sins, to stop believing ourselves to be righteous or innocent, to see ourselves as we are. And that entails identification with sinners just as Jesus does here at his baptism. It's a process, frankly, of rehumanizing ourselves, taking responsibility for who we are and what we do, rather than seeing ourselves strictly as victims. Recognizing we also are victimizers, we have the potential then to rehumanize others against whom we hold grudges or whatever because we recognize our own culpability. And if that culpability doesn't make us evil, then it's highly unlikely it makes the other person evil. Justice begins with confession of sin because it should humble ourselves to see ourselves as sinners that that label doesn't just apply to other people. The main thing that needs to happen is the edifice of our own self-righteousness needs to crumble and fall. All our heroes have clay feet, and so do we. The great condescension begins with the incarnation and continues with the baptism, and Jesus says this fulfills all righteousness. If he can identify with sinners and seek reconciliation, then so can we, so should we, so must we. The new thing that's announced in Isaiah not only makes reconciliation possible between God and man, it also makes possible reconciliation between human beings, which means it makes possible peace. Because we cease to identify as right or righteous and seek reconciliation not to be seen as right. It accepts responsibility, reminds us we too are not righteous, but there's one who is. I don't have to stand in my fragile self-righteousness and hope no one points to my guilt. I can freely admit my guilt because I know that my righteousness, like Paul's, is ultimately filthy rags in comparison with Jesus. If Jesus can condescend, he who is without sin, to identify with sinners in baptism and take the risk of being misunderstood, mis-evaluated, then, well, that's who we're called to be. That's who we're called to be, the ones who set reconciliation and peace above all else, not at the expense of truth, but always with grace. And we do so as those who have received the greatest grace ever imaginable because Jesus laid it all aside in love. And then we can have truth.
because truth coupled with grace means true justice true justice but that only begins when we lay aside what we're seeking which is to be right <laughs> and justice means you bow before me and listen to what I have to say take my lecture and then I magnanimously forgive you the father in the story of the prodigal makes no speech at all doesn't proclaim his own righteousness Receive, receives the confession of his son and then restores him to sonship that's the model Jesus shown us how to do it and then as he died prayed father forgive them for they know not what they do that should be the way we live it should be the way that we rela relate to him and to one another it takes courage because what it means is I'm going to lay aside what I believe to be my own righteous claim and give grace instead because I see in you God. I see his love for you. He sent his son not just for me. He sent him for you. And the way that I can make that manifest to you today is to lay aside my own claim to being right and love you. Again, not at the expense of truth, but in grace. Not so that I can be great, but so that he can. Otherwise, he died for nothing. If we can't apply those principles to our own lives, then it's very difficult for us to be able to say that um, Christ's is a call here in 2023 to get to to lay aside all that stuff and to align yourself completely with Jesus as he has aligned himself completely with you in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen